Praise the Lord and good evening. Welcome to our Bible study series, Out of Bondage into Abundance. We've come to part four in this study, and I want to pick up right off where we concluded last time, because this section I'm particularly passionate about. Um, if you are following along in the notes, and I would recommend doing that, they can be downloaded from our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And again, this is entitled, Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we are now moving through part four, all of the previous parts, both the notes and the recordings, are there at that website uh, for you to download and make use of if you've missed any of the previous sessions. Give a real quick recap here. We're looking at the whole journey of Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Each step in that journey recorded for us in the Old Testament represents a spiritual experience for you and for me in Christ. Good example being the Passover was the only way they could be delivered from the bondage in Egypt. Paul writing to the Corinthian Christians, he says, Christ is our Passover, and therefore let us keep the Passover feast. So, everything that's in the Old Testament is a shadow. It's looking forward in time to the reality that is found in Christ. These were not imaginary stories, they really happened, but they point to an even greater reality which is found in Christ in the New Covenant. And we are now looking at the third stage in Israel's journey out of Egypt into the Promised Land. They came out through the blood of the Passover lamb, they cross through the Red Sea, which is a picture for us of water baptism. And then, 50 days later, after leaving Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, which we have been seeing in the last several sessions, is a clear picture of what happens to you and me as believers in Jesus Christ when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. When Israel came to Mount Sinai, the whole mountain was shaking, it was on fire, and God descended and spoke to them face to face. Likewise, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, God came down in the upper room and baptized 120 disciples with the Holy Spirit and fire. And literally, tongues of fire came to rest on their heads, as God filled them with the Holy Spirit. And we are continuing to look at seven different things that took place there at Mount Sinai. This was a very significant part of Israel's journey, and so significant that they spent one full year at Mount Sinai. So this was not just a casual one or two day stop, Music is playing while I'm preaching. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. 
Um, sorry for the interruption, but my wife is telling me that there's some music playing. Uh, I have no idea what that is. Uh, but we will proceed, and hopefully um, you can hear me over the music. Um, at Mount Sinai, seven different things, very significant things, took place. And every one of these corresponds to a spiritual experience that God wants every one of us to have through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let me read through this list again. Number one, God revealed His law and made a covenant with His people Israel. Number two, He brought His people into an intimate, holy marriage relationship with Himself. That's where we are now. We're going to conclude that part tonight. Thirdly, it was at Mount Sinai that God sought for a temple where He could dwell. Number four, God revealed His glory to the people at Mount Sinai. Number five, God organized and united the people. Remember, these were two and a half million slaves coming out of uh, Egypt. They had been slaves for 400 years. He now organizes and unites them into one body and actually orders them by ranks like a mighty army. Number six, at Mount Sinai, he established them as a kingdom of priests. And finally, number seven, he prepared them to begin their march into the promised land. Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, without any further ado, let's continue looking at this second very important event. God brought Israel not only into a covenant, but it's like a marriage covenant. He brought them into a very intimate relationship with himself. And we saw in Exodus 19, God says, I brought you to myself to be my treasured possession. And at Mount Sinai, we read last time that God spoke to them face to face. That, that always speaks about an intimacy, a face to face relationship, not some impersonal God way up in the sky or even way up on top of the mountain, but a God who wants to come down and meet with us, talk to us face to face, out of the fire that's on that mountain. And we saw that at Mount Sinai, God became a husband to them. And there are several different scriptures that we read, and one other one that I don't believe is in your outline, but in Isaiah 54, 5, it also states, Your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. So God became a husband to Israel at Mount Sinai. And this, of course, uh, has profound implications for us in the New Covenant. And we began looking at this last time. I want to reread uh, one passage because it's so important and it's going to tie right into 
some other scriptures that we want to look at tonight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, from verse 11 onwards, Paul is speaking about the fact that the Holy Spirit has now come to dwell in the believer, and thereby his body becomes the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that more in depth when we look at the next point, that of God wanting a temple, a place to dwell. But here in 1 Corinthians 6, there's a very important point that Paul is making. He says in verse 11, after listing a number of different sins that will disqualify you from entering the kingdom of God, homosexuality, fornication, adultery, drunkenness. He makes a long list of all kinds of sins. And then he says in verse 11, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, past tense. That's what you used to be. But now you've been sanctified, justified by the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Through the Holy Spirit, they were washed, sanctified, and justified. Then we pick it up in verse 15 and onwards. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, quote, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, Honor God with your bodies. Now, Paul is doing several things in this passage. He's giving a stern warning once again against any kind of sexual immorality. That would include fornication, adultery, uh, all forms of perversion, homosexuality. All those things he explained earlier in this chapter will disqualify you from entering, possessing, inheriting the kingdom of God. I don't care what the modern preachers, what the modern churches are saying, they're lying. These are things that will keep people out of the kingdom of God. But he's making a much larger point also, that being the relationship between the believer and the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit has now come to dwell in your body. 
Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I'm rereading this is we're going to find in another passage shortly, Paul quotes this same portion of scripture from Genesis 2, where it's talking about marriage between a man and his wife. And he's drawing a clear parallel between marriage in the physical and spiritual marriage that takes place through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now follow me here. This is new for some, and it might be a little hard to understand. So I want to go through this carefully. In verse 15, I want to read this again slowly. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now that's a little bit mysterious. How is my body a member of Christ? Well, he goes on. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? So, he's now talking about two different things. The spiritual union between the believer and Christ and a physical union between a man and a prostitute in an immoral relationship. He says, do you not know that when that immoral union takes place with a prostitute, those two people become one? Verse 16 again, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? And here's how he's going to prove that. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, when God joined Adam and Eve together. For it is said, and then it's in quotations, the two will become one flesh. Clearly a reference to the physical union that consummates a marriage. The physical union that took place way back there in Genesis 2, in the first marriage. But, in verse 17, he switches back to the spiritual union. But, whoever is united with the Lord, the Lord is spirit, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. <clears throat> married to him, is really what he's saying. United, the same way a man and a woman, or a man and a prostitute, are united through sexual relations, we too are united with the Lord by the Spirit. And then he turns back again to warning about physical immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sin <coughs> excuse me, sins against their own body. Verse 19. Do you not know? 
meaning this is important for every one of us to know. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Why? You're married. You belong to your husband now. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. <clears throat> if you study over this uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, um, I think you'll see it more and more clearly what Paul is doing here. He's comparing the physical union between a man and a woman and the spiritual union between each believer and by extension, the whole body of Christ that is united with Christ through the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in our body through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we are united with Christ. We become one with Him in spirit. Now, I want to look at some new scriptures that highlight this even more. We saw at Exodus 19, when the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, it was a fearful thing. The whole mountain was shaking, fire and smoke, and the Lord told Moses to go and consecrate the people. And I'm reading again from Exodus 19:10. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. <clears throat> it goes on to say, after that, Moses went down, he consecrated them, they washed their clothes, then he said to them, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. So, there was a three-day period of time in which they needed to prepare themselves. Those are key words, prepare yourselves. They needed to consecrate sanctify, cleanse themselves. Why? Because they're about to meet with a holy God. And God is bringing them into this spiritual union with himself where he wants to become their husband. But before that can happen, there has to be a preparation. There has to be a washing, there has to be a consecration, there has to be a sanctification. Likewise, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, note what I just said, Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is known as the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is given to believers in Jesus Christ. It doesn't say he gives the Holy Spirit only to those who are holy, holy, holy. Quite the contrary, <clears throat> we're quite unholy 
when the Holy Spirit first comes to take up residence in our life. His job thereafter is to begin to sanctify us. The Holy Spirit comes to make us holy. And it's a lifelong process. It's called sanctification. And God begins to sanctify every believer and the whole church, the whole body of Christ, corporately, because he's preparing the church to be a pure, holy, spotless bride for Jesus Christ. Now, this is very mysterious if it's the first time you're hearing about it. For many of us, we've heard this many times, but I'll never forget the first time I read about this, and the first time I heard about it, it was like, married to Jesus? I didn't know Jesus was getting married. The bride of Christ? I didn't know Jesus had a bride. So, these are very important things for us to learn. And I'm sad to say, this isn't taught in a lot of churches today. And I find many Christians are in total ignorance about the things we're sharing here tonight. And these are extremely important for us to know and to understand. Now, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. If you're following in the notes, we have now come to page 41. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. <clears throat> Highlight those words, saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Two important points I glean from that highlighted portion. Number one, one of the main works of the Holy Spirit is in your life and in my life. What is it? It's sanctification. He is holy. He comes to make holy. That's what sanctify means the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The second important point here is this is an integral part of our salvation. Let me read it again. Saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sadly, in many Christian circles, sanctification is a taboo subject. We don't even talk about that around here. Holiness? No, 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 no. We're scared of that word. And never, never, never do we even want to imply that sanctification is a part of your salvation. After all, you just raise your hand, say a sinner's prayer, you're saved, you're in, you've joined the club, that's it. It doesn't even matter if you're drunk in a bar somewhere. If Jesus comes, you're going up in the rapture. Well, that wasn't Paul's idea. He realized that the Holy Spirit has come 
to begin a great work in each believer's life. It's to sanctify us. It's to cleanse us. It's to wash us and make us a holy dwelling place where the Holy Spirit will be comfortable. Paul talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. If we go on sinning and doing unholy things after the Spirit of God has come to take up residence in our lives, we're going to find ourselves continually grieving that Spirit. Saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, how much does God want to sanctify us? What, what exactly is this sanctifying work? How holy does He want me to be if I'm called to be the bride of Christ? Well, that's a very important question. And the next scripture, I think, gives us some indication. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. I like that. Through and through. Sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. <clears throat> now, this sounds impossible, and it is. It is humanly impossible, that is. Sanctified through and through. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand what that's saying. It's basically saying every part of you, every little corner, every molecule, every thought, every word, your entire life. And in case you don't understand that, Paul goes on to say your whole spirit, whole soul, your whole body, that's what needs to be sanctified. We are body, soul, and spirit, and the Holy Spirit goes right to work on all three parts of us, sanctifying our spirit, our soul, and our body, and then keeping and preserving us blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, We'll see a little bit later on, that is the actual wedding day. That's when the bride is joined with the bridegroom at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, unless you and I get overwhelmed with this, scared, and maybe even frightened away, verse 24 is very important. The one who calls you to this level of holiness, the one who's calling you to be the bride of Christ, he is faithful and he will do it. In other words, if you and I will surrender, yield to, 
cooperate with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is very well able to sanctify every single one of us. I don't care what your background is. I don't care where you came from, what kind of sin you were in, what kind of darkness he brought you out of. The one who calls you is able, he is faithful, and he will do it. We have to trust him. We have to cooperate with him to make sure that this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit keeps going on. Now, we come to the next portion of Scripture, which is extremely important. And I'm going to take this slowly, because it is so important. Ephesians 5, from verse 22 to 32. This is often used in marriage seminars, in marriage counseling, and that's all good and well. And there's some important wisdom here for married couples, for wives and husbands and their relationship. But I think you'll see that Paul is speaking to something far greater than even the, the physical marriage relationship. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, beginning from verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Now I want you to notice the similarities between this passage and what we read a little earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul also said, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Picking it up again from verse 30. For we are members of his body. And then he quotes from the same portion of scripture in Genesis 2, the first marriage between Adam and Eve. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, if it ended there, 
we would basically understand that this is a nice teaching on marriage, on what marriage is, on how husbands and wives should relate to one another, and it tells a little bit about the relationship between Christ and his church and how there are some similarities. But it doesn't end there. Right after quoting these verses from Genesis 2 about the union between a man and a woman in physical marriage, here's the punchline. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, Excuse me. Even though Paul is bouncing back and forth between the physical relationship between a husband and a wife and the relationship between Christ and the church, verse 32, I think, tells me very clearly that the overriding message that Paul is wanting to communicate here is this mysterious union that takes place between Christ and the believer through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, a mystery in the Bible is not exactly the same thing that we might think of when we think of a mystery. It's not something that we have to try to solve or figure out, or like one of these uh, murder mystery stories where you have to uncover all the evidence and try to find out who done it. A mystery in the Bible means God has deliberately hidden it from our view. And the only way you can know it, the only way you can understand it, is by revelation. He prayed earlier in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, that the eyes of their heart, the eyes of their understanding, might be opened and enlightened. So, this mystery, we're not going to figure it out. It has to be revealed to us, and we saw last time that it's the Holy Spirit that reveals these things to us. So, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes, begins this great process of sanctification, and begins to reveal to us this mysterious union that has now taken place between us and Christ, that we are espoused, we're promised to Jesus Christ as his future bride. We're espoused to be married to Christ. Now, some more similarities between Mount Sinai and the reality in the Holy Spirit. They needed three days to wash themselves, consecrate themselves, sanctify themselves, even abstaining from sexual relations, to get ready to meet with 
and in a sense to marry a God who is holy, holy, holy. <clears throat> Similarly, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 5 that when Christ died on the cross, he wasn't just dying to forgive our sins. Thank God he did that. But let me draw your attention again to a few things in this passage. Ephesians 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay? We all understand that part. He gave his life on the cross. He gave himself for the church. But the next verse makes it clear, he didn't give himself just to forgive her sins so she could go on living a carnal, worldly, selfish life. No, he gave himself up for her to make her holy. Note those words, to make her holy. Jesus died on the cross not only to forgive our sins, but to make us holy, cleansing her by the washing with water. Remember the Israelites had to wash their clothes. We also need to be washed with water through the word and to present her to himself. Those are interesting words. Present her to himself as a radiant church, a glorious church. I believe that phrase, to present her, is pointing toward the rapture, the wedding day. On that day, she must be presented to her husband <clears throat> as a radiant church, a church without any stain, without any wrinkle, or without any blemish, but, and here are the words again, holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. So, thank God for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We have gifts. We can prophesy. We speak in tongues. We can cast out devils. We feel the power of God now. That's all good and well. That's great. But we're still missing an important aspect of the ministry and the work that the Holy Spirit came to do. Again, 2 Thessalonians we saw, it's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Not just to get me out of hell, but to make me holy. Cleansing us with the washing with water through the word so that we can be presented a glorious bride, a radiant church without stain, without wrinkle, without any blemish. Every bride on her wedding day. Man, there's not a spot or a wrinkle on that wedding dress. It is beautiful. It is stunning. It is perfect. And as she comes down the aisle, everybody's ooing and aahing, 
at the bride and her beautiful gown. Well, there's a spiritual counterpart to that. And there's a scripture that you will not find in the notes, but it should be. It's a very important one. It's found in Revelation chapter 19, starting with verse 6 through 8. Revelation 19, <clears throat> verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Man, this is some kind of a praise service. What is going on here? A great multitude praising God, shouting the Lord God Almighty reigns. It sounds like a roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. Hallelujah! The Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. This great praise service, it could be concerning the salvation God gave you and me. It could be something about His mercy or His goodness or His holiness. Any number of things they might have been praising God for. But we're specifically told why they are shouting so loud, why they are rejoicing with such great praise. The wedding of the Lamb has come. The wedding of the Lamb. The Lamb is getting married. There is going to be a wedding for the Lamb. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the Passover Lamb, and the Passover Lamb is finally getting married. And he has a bride. Something very important is told us in verse 7. And this ties right back to Exodus 19. Prepare yourselves because in three days you're going to meet with your husband, with God, who is holy, holy, holy. Consecrate yourselves, wash your clothes, do all these things. Get ready because you're going you're, you're gonna to meet the Lord. What does it say? <clears throat> His bride has made herself ready. There's a preparation. People don't like to hear this. This isn't a real popular teaching in churches. People would rather hear, Oh, I'm saved. Hallelujah. I don't have to do anything else now. I can just sit around and wait till Jesus comes, and then I'm going to go to heaven and sit on a cloud and eat grapes and play a harp. No, right now, we have been given the Holy Spirit, we've been given the Word of God, so that we can be washed, cleansed, sanctified, and made ready for this 
great event which is about to take place, the wedding of the Lamb. Now, there seems to be a bit of a contradiction here. Verse 7 says, the bride has made herself ready. So that would seem to indicate that the whole burden is on you and me. We have to do this work ourselves. But notice verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean. These are her wedding garments, her wedding gown. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Key word, given. It's a gift. This beautiful white gown that she will wear on the wedding day without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish is really a gift from God. It's a gift that Jesus paid for with his blood on the cross. It's a gift that the Holy Spirit wants to impart to every one of us. But there's always a cooperation. God works and we work. I love Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Both are working. God is working in you. You are working out your salvation. So, there is an application of our energies, our devotion, our passion, our attention, our time, everything we are putting into this to make ourselves ready, and He's working in us with all of His power to prepare us for that great day. Faithful is He who calls us, He will also do it. But, What makes me sad is in many churches and in many Christian circles, rather than believe God for this great and awesome work to be accomplished in our lives, we water down the gospel and we say, well, God didn't really mean holiness. He didn't really mean sanctified through and through. He doesn't really expect us to be without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. Um, God knows our hearts, and if we're, you know, dabbling with a little bit of homosexuality, or adultery, or some other kind of sin, drunkenness, drugs, uh, worldliness, he's going to look the other way, and, you know, when Jesus comes, we're all going to go up. No, I'm sorry, that is not true. That is not true. That is not what the New Testament teaches. There is a very high standard. And come on, let's think about it. We're talking about the bride that is going to marry Jesus Christ. What kind of a bride does Jesus want to marry? Somebody who's not even interested in him? Somebody who's bored with the Word of God? Bored with worship? Bored with prayer? I don't think so. He wants to marry those who love Him passionately, who love the Word of God, who love to be in church, who love to be in prayer, who love to be studying the Scriptures, who love the things that He 
loves. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about this mysterious marriage union between Christ and his bride. And it is made possible through the Holy Spirit. Two other portions of scripture I want us to read from the book of Revelation. And the second one I think will make it crystal clear to all of us that this mystery of Christ and the church, it is made possible through the Holy Spirit. Now let's go from Revelation 19 to Revelation 21. Here John is given a tour of heaven, and he sees a number of amazing things as he's escorted around by one of the seven angels. Revelation 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Whoa, stop. Here it is again. The Lamb has a wife. We read about the marriage in Revelation 19. Now we're going to see his bride. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the angel carried me away in the Spirit, note that, in the Spirit, to a mountain great and high, and showed me what? I thought we were going to see the bride. Showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he goes on and describes the gates of pearl and the foundation stones and all the precious stones that make up the, the city of New Jerusalem there. Well, there's only one way to interpret this. The bride is the city. And the city is the bride. Because the angel was very clear. Come, I'm going to show you the lamb's wife. Here she is. Look. And when he looks, what does he see? The holy city, New Jerusalem. We're not just going to the New Jerusalem. We're called to be the New Jerusalem. We are the holy city. That's what God's called us to be. His eternal dwelling place and the eternal bride who is married to the Lamb. Finally, the last chapter of the Bible, a very important verse, Revelation 22 and verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take 
the free gift of the water of life. It's actually a very strange scripture. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. You have two different entities. The Holy Spirit and you have the Bride. But they're all saying one thing. They're saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, Come! And if you read a little further down in Revelation, he finally responds to their plea. In Revelation 22.20, he says, Yes, I am coming soon. Here's my understanding. And again, we're talking about a profound mystery here. That's what Paul called it, a profound mystery. This cannot be understood by a carnal mind, cannot be figured out by human intellect. This is understood only through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in each individual believer and then begins to unite us together as one body, the body of Christ, and begins to reveal to us this great, high, heavenly calling that we are called not just out of darkness, not just out of hell, we're called to the throne of God to be married to Jesus Christ. I can't even begin to comprehend that with my natural mind. And even, even as I'm speaking those words, my brain just starts sizzling. It can't handle it. Married to Jesus Christ? I can't understand that. But my spirit leaps for joy because the Holy Spirit inside of me is giving me revelation that indeed this is what I am called for. This is what you are called for, to be the bride of Christ. The other thing I understand from Revelation 22.17, as this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is going on in our lives, our whole body, soul, and spirit is being cleansed, sanctified. By the, word, by the way, sanctify means to set apart. Holy means it's set apart from every defilement. And we will be seeing later on in this study one important part of sanctification, and this is something that I'm praying about a lot in these days. We need to be set apart from the world. We are not of this world. We're not to conform to this world. We're not to buy into its philosophies, its songs, its sports idols, its music idols, or anything else of the world. And matter of fact, James says, if we love the world, we are adulteresses. We have committed spiritual adultery in this marriage relationship with Christ. That's why John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. They're not of God. 
We need to set our affection on things above, not on things of this earth. And I'm not just talking about material stuff, cars, houses, jobs. I'm talking about the whole mindset of the world. It is corrupt. It's under satanic control. And we need to come out of that mindset. Be separate. Be sanctified. Be holy. And as that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit progresses in our lives, something very interesting is happening. We're becoming more and more one with the Holy Spirit. Until ultimately, as we see here, the Spirit and the Bride say the same thing. They're saying, Come, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Come back quickly, Lord. And his response, Yes, I am coming soon. This portion of our Bible study, um, I could spend a lot more time on, but we're going to move on next time to the third point. But this is extremely important. And if the things that we're sharing tonight are new to you, I would strongly recommend, if you don't already have them, get the notes, listen to the recording again, and go back over every one of these scriptures and pray over these things until the Holy Spirit begins to make it real inside your spirit. I am called to be the bride of Christ. I am called with a great high calling. And I must walk worthy of that calling, the scripture says. God has to work in my life, but I have to work with God. I have to make every effort. There's an effort that I have to make as God is putting forth His effort in my life. So there are certain things I need to do. I need to yield to the Holy Spirit. I need to cooperate. I need to be a doer of God's Word. I need to come out of the world. I need to separate myself from things that are going to defile me, spot my garments, wrinkle me or cause me to be disqualified from this great high calling. Let us pray tonight that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in each one of our lives, sanctifying us, cleansing us, setting us apart for this great purpose for which Jesus gave himself on the cross of Calvary, and that we might more and more have this focus, come Lord Jesus, come quickly Lord, I want to be with you, I don't have anything in this world that interests me as much as you, I have set my affection on you, I have fixed my eyes on you and on things above, therefore come, this is a prayer, the spirit and the bride say come, this is their request. The Holy Spirit in the bride and the bride with the Holy Spirit together are crying out, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. 
Father, it is mind-boggling the things we're talking about tonight. That you, O oh God, would care so much about fallen sinners that you would send your Son to die on the cross, even to pardon us of all of our sins. That's more than enough for us to rejoice for all eternity and give you praise and honor and glory. But God, the good news of the gospel goes way beyond that. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've called us out of sin into holiness to be the very bride of Christ. And through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, O oh God, you have come to take up residence in these bodies of our bodies that were once used for sin and for evil, but bodies that you are now sanctifying, making holy, setting apart for God and for his purposes. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each and every one of us, that you would help us to yield more and more to the working of the Holy Spirit. We would yield to the Word of God, that you can cleanse us, wash us, set us apart from sin and from every defilement in this world, that we might be that bride without spot, without wrinkle, without any blemish. Lord, you are the one who called us with this great high calling, and we read that you are faithful to do it. And therefore, we say to you, Amen. Let it be done. Let this great work be completed, because time is short, and soon, and very soon, you will be returning, Lord Jesus. And I pray, O oh God, that each and every one of us will be prepared, will be ready for that day. The bride has made herself ready. Lord, let none of us be found lacking, wanting on that day. But let us be completely prepared. Let us be ready to meet our heavenly bridegroom. God, we commit ourselves now to your grace, to your care. Keep us by the power of the Holy Spirit, holy and blameless, until that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.